if you're seated, you can turn to James chapter 3. James chapter 3, continuing to move through the book of James. Lord willing, we'll be there uh, through the rest of the year. But uh, we'll begin as we do each Sunday with a time of prayer for some specific needs. And so uh, join me in, in praying where you're at as uh, we lift these needs to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we worship you because you are holy, righteous, pure, and merciful. We praise you for your many attributes for all of time and that could barely scratch the surface of our understanding and our joy. You are worthy of eternal worship from all of creation, day in, day out, forever. So help us not to lose sight of that lose sight of you, lose sight of your bigness, your unsearchableness. We, we have sung that we invite you into this place, and how can a big God be so present with us? We, we ask you that you help us to see that reality, to experience that reality, to know and to savor. We don't want to take your presence for granted. We thank you for blessing us with yourself. We know you are here today. Thank you for forgiving us of our sins and welcoming us into your family and into your arms. We ask that you would help us to join with other churches like Parish of the Redeemer and First Schwartz and First West to become a sign, an instrument, a foretaste of your kingdom as you have your way here as it is in heaven. Father, we ask you to bless the leaders in the crossing with healthy families physically and spiritually. Pour out your goodness on us as we pour out our goodness as we serve. Bless all the various leaders here and all of our co-laboring congregations, empower and renew elders, deacons, small group, missional community leaders, teachers, all their families. Father, we thank you for gifting them to your church for your glory and the edification of the church and the good of the world. We thank you for the new elder that was installed this morning at the Well Church. Bless Jacob and his family, and Larice and the Weld as they continue to press the gospel forward in South Monroe. We ask that you would strengthen our PAC team as, as they are advocates for the V family that we sent, but also for the Wanchi family to whom they have been sent. Help them holistically represent these needs in prayer. We thank you for help ministries like Perspectives. Use it to launch more church planting teams and to unreached people groups that we pray for weekly like the Aceh and the Baima and the Bonin and the Tongan, the Tibetan Jone, the Laz, the Zaza, the Mandor peoples. God, save them. Bring them into your family. Help them to hear the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And continue to help make us a sending church. We long to see future church planters and church planting teams sent from here working with other churches and other states, with groups like Acts 29 and SOMA, and among the nations with organizations like GSI. God, bless these networks. Bless the churches that make up these networks. Bless the works in the various countries that make up these networks. God, thank you for putting us here in Monroe. We pray your blessings over Mayor Ellis and all the public servants in Washtenaw Parish. Help us to help them. Help us to make their job even easier because we are spreading the aroma of Christ and seeing gospel changed lives that are making us better citizens of our city and our parish. 
God, may we, may we be a safe haven for college students who are coming back to ULM and Delta this fall. Give us inro inroads into these communities for your glory. Help us to love and shepherd them well. We thank you for watching over the V family and the T family and giving them boldness for their work in Indonesia and Berlin. Surround them with true friends where you have put them. And now, Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We, we treasure it. We never want to take it for granted. We don't want to just hear someone talk just another sermon. We want the Spirit of God and the Word of God to do deep, soul-transforming work in us. And we know that's possible because it's your Word. And it's, you, it's you, the Spirit of God who wrote it. It's alive. So use what is good that I say, but do much more than the words that I say. Change hearts, change lives, change us. Bring maybe even someone into a saving relationship with you today. All these things for your glory alone, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are through the first two chapters of James, and so far there's been this coherent theme that has made up most of these two chapters. If you call yourself a Christian, there's got to be evidence that backs that up. And as we've made mention many times, James was the half-brother of Jesus. James grew up in the same house. No one knows how many years separated the, the birth of Jesus from the birth of James. So we're using our sanctified imagination to kind of speculate that at some point, James had memories of an older brother who also was the son of God, who also never sinned, was literally perfect. Now, we know that's a common trait of all firstborns. And so if you're a firstborn in the room, we know, we know. You're as close to perfect as possible. But Jesus actually was perfect. But James, to what degree he saw that and observed it growing up, we don't know. But what we do know is James was not an immediate follower of his brother as Messiah and Lord. This happened at some point after Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried and resurrected. But it was significant enough that when Paul is explaining the gospel to the Corinthian church, he mentions G James specifically appearing, or Jesus rather, specifically appearing to his brother James. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preach to you. So here's the gospel which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you're being saved. If you hold to the message I preach to you, unless you believed in vain, which is possible, Verse 3, for I passed on to you as of most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So we're not talking about the two men who were disciples of Jesus, James the Greater, James the Lesser. We're talking about James, the brother of Jesus, and the significance of that was for the early church to have an actual family member of Jesus become a follower of Jesus was tremendous evidence that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Because this was the final piece of evidence they needed to know it was true. He was the Messiah, King, Savior of the world. They saw him live his godly life growing up, they saw his ministry, and they saw him die, so their thinking could be, okay, well, our brother, great guy, kind of misguided, thought too much of himself, and got himself killed. But when he arose and shows up, oh, well, that changes things. I guess he really was all those things he'd been saying all of those years. 
So you can imagine James even more. So again, sanctified imagination as the years went on would think back to his growing up days with Jesus and the evidence of his life that he was really different. Man, I never saw him sass mom. Like he never, as typical firstborns will do, tortured the younger siblings. He just loved us and served us. He never demanded that the younger siblings bow down and worship him. Again, typical firstborn. I'm I'm hating on firstborns. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm a functional firstborn, so I get it. There was a consistency and authenticity to the life of Jesus that backed up what was true about his identity. And so it really makes sense for the letter of James to include this so much as a theme. If you say you're a follower of Jesus, your life will give off evidence. Your life will back up what you profess. And we've looked at the evidence over the first two chapters, this person who goes through trials with joy this this person who's not expressing uh, human sinful anger but but instead withholding that to to be holy and righteous in his words and actions this person who's carrying out pure and faultless religion to love the widows and the orphans of the land and watching their speech this person who's not showing favoritism of the rich over the poor but actually loving his neighbor as himself just Evidence after evidence. And then we spent two weeks in that hugely important section about uh, faith without, without works is dead. You have to have works that demonstrate you really have faith. Without those works, and we talked about that for two weeks, then you might not have genuine faith. And now we move on into chapter 3. Again, in case you don't know, chapters, verses, not part of the original letter, but added hundreds of years later to help God's people reference the Bible. So we move into what we understand as chapter 3, but really just the next part of the letter for those who originally received it. And there seems to be a sudden shift. Verse 1, not many should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we will receive a stricter judgment. A sudden warning for those who aspire to be teachers to be careful about that aspiration because... You will indeed be inviting a stricter judgment. But it makes much more sense when you understand it in the context of the next 11 verses. Let's read this entire section. Verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is mature, able to control the whole body. Now if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we direct their whole bodies. And consider ships. Though very large and driven by fierce winds, they are guided by the very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So too, though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. Consider how a small fire sets ablaze a large forest. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among our members. It stains the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and fish is tamed and has been tamed by humankind, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in God's likeness. Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree produce olives, my brothers and sisters, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a saltwater spring yield fresh water. Now, we'll focus on verse 1 today, and then next week we'll walk through the next 11 verses. But a very easy way to see how all of this is connected to previous material in James is to understand that the work of our tongue falls under the works of the body 
that must be in line with the reality of genuine faith in Jesus. Part of verifying the genuineness of our faith is the fruit of our bodies, the things we do, which includes the fruit of our lips, the things that we say. Now, James has already spoken about this. James 1, verse 26, if anyone thinks he's religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. And we'll see later that the misuse of the tongue is a problem in this church. James 4, 1, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? Verse 11, don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. And honestly, I think it's realistic to say that this is a problem in every church that's ever existed. Seemingly every letter in the New Testament has a section on how the use of the tongue among fellow believers has to have a certain quality. Ephesians 4.25, Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Verse 29 of Ephesians 4, No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need, so that it gives grace to those who hear. Two verses later, Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you, along with all malice. The importance of our words is built into how God has created. God spoke everything into existence with his words. Let there be, and there was. The enemy of God came and tempted Eve with what? His words. Did God really say? The entire Old Testament is our stories built around God speaking to his people and then God speaking through his people so that prophets would stand and say, thus says the Lord. Until the one day the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. As we saw in Hebrews, God spoke before through his prophets, and now he speaks through his son, upholding everything in all the creation by the word of his power. And so it only makes sense that the speech of the only part of creation described as image bearers would really matter and reveal who we really are, how genuine our faith really is. Even Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 36 and 37, I can I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be acquitted, and by your words, you will be condemned. Now, this is interesting considering what we saw in chapter 2, that in some situations, your words are not enough. If a brother or sister comes to you in need, and all you do is offer them words of comfort, go in peace, be warm and well-fed, it's not just that you didn't love them in deed and action. It's not just that you're unloving. James is saying you're probably not a believer. Like you're not even a Christian. And now we're putting, so, so, so the words then are not enough, but now we're putting a lot of weight on words. Words aren't always enough to show the fruit of your faith if action is needed, but words are still really important and can be enough evidence to condemn and bring stricter judgment, especially if you are a teacher. So who are we talking about as a teacher? James includes himself when he says we will receive a stricter judgment. So it's at least someone in the official role of a church leader. Elder, pastor, bishop, overseer. All New Testament terms that are synonymous with someone in this office of a role of a pastor or elder. We, we tried in the early years to get everyone to call us bishops. Didn't really go over very well, so we just went with elders, pastors. 
a huge aspect of what we do as pastors and elders has to do with teaching the Bible, teaching the Word of God. I was just earlier uh, this morning at a, a service uh, worship gathering for the Well Church. They're installing their second elder. Larice was their first church planting elder, and uh, a guy named Jacob Turnbull is their, their second elder. And part of the service was commissioning him with a charge from the Word of God and then giving him a Bible saying, this is your tool. This is the toolbox for you to do your job as a pastor and an elder in this local church. Alexander Strzok, in his book on biblical eldership, describes the job of the pastor and elder to be primarily feed the flock, lead the flock, protect the flock, and care for the flock. And a lot of the feeding, leading, protecting, and caring is centered around the word of God and care for your souls. We saw this back in Hebrews 13. Obey your leaders and submit to them since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account so they can do this with joy and not with grief. That would be unprofitable for you. Our primary role as pastors and elders is keeping watch over your souls, and our primary tool to do that is God's Word. Even other resources we use, books, podcasts, articles, web, what, websites, etc., are filtered through the lens of, the God's, of God's Word to make sure they don't contradict Scripture, but uphold biblical precepts and principles. Sure, it, it, we might and sometimes we will help do practical and tangible things that don't seem to be related to soul care through, through God's word. You know, help you move, uh, listen, and help you think through financial difficulties, job transitions, relational issues, pray with you when you're sick or facing surgery or procedures or tests. We'll hang out and watch sports, talk movies, go to the games that your kids play, share meals, share coffee. A lot of pastoral shepherding shows up like that. But if we're doing all of that as a means to ultimately care for your soul, then it's always going to be infused with God's word and involve teaching. We, get, we, we used to get our, our boys' uh, haircut at a place uh, where the barber was a lay pastor. And I'd walk in with the boys and the guy would always say, you got a word for us today, pastor? And my first thought in my head, I didn't express this, was not really. I'd really just like to sit here and play on my phone while you cut their hair that's what I would enjoy but thankfully I'm like okay I can't say that that's unloving and unkind so yeah man I got a word so I'm thinking real quick okay this is something you know I read or in a quiet time or I'm working on a sermon or just something that stuck with me and that's what he wanted let's have this conversation about God's word and so I would share and he would share and we'd kind of go back and forth and enjoy that because we as pastors always have to have a word. Be ready in season and out of season, Paul told Timothy. Because in our personal lives, we're feasting on God's word. So there's always a fresh word and we're always ready to give it. And when we don't have a word because we haven't been feasting on God's word, then that's conviction on us because something is off. We've lost our affection for Jesus, lost affection for his word. As my dad would always tell me growing up uh, as a pastor of 50 some odd years now, um, you know, I was starting off preaching and always keep your gun loaded, son. Always have a word ready because it flows from time you've spent in the word. And so the pastor, the elder is always teaching, always infusing everything we do with the word. Yes, I'm praying for you in your sickness before your procedure, your test, your surgery. God help, God heal, God show up. But I also want to remind you of the truth of who God is. 
He has the power to heal and restore, yes. And we know in the eternal state, all sickness and sorrow and suffering will be gone. In the original created order, there was no sickness or sorrow or suffering. So we know what he desires about sickness, for it to be gone one day. He hates it. It will end. But even still, if he doesn't choose to heal them in this situation, he is still good. And he still loves you. And he's not cursing you. But he's with you, not leaving you. And he has you and your family and your soul, and it is secure. And because he is secure, you are secure, and your faith is secure. And all the things that we're waiting for to be true will be true. And the curse has been reversed. And we will go backwards, and all things will be made new. It's coming. Even if we still suffer now, it's we, yes, you have financial issues. Let's talk about that. We can talk budgeting and job and income and wise stewardship and giving and being generous. A lot of practical things we could discuss, but also a ton of biblical things that even in crazy inflationary times, potential recession times, price of gas going crazy, you have a Father in heaven who promises to meet every single need you have. And this promise is so secure without fail even not just what we need, but often beyond what we need, so much, so certain and secure in that promise, Jesus says we don't even have to worry about these things. We don't have to have anxiety about these things because your Heavenly Father knows that you need these things, he says, Matthew 6. So seek him first, seek his kingdom first, and all these things will be added to you. We can even, in our lack, the promise of our Father providing for us is so certain and so secure, even in our lack, we can be generous with others, as the New Testament church was. And so there's a practical aspect to talking through how you handle your money, but then there's soul work. How do you view money? How do you view your Father in heaven? How do you trust Him to provide and give all things? Well, this sounds awesome. I mean, who wouldn't love to do this job? What is this warning about maybe you shouldn't be a teacher? What is that about? Like, this is what a pastor gets to do? Yes. That's a lot of what a pastor gets to do, have these kinds of conversations. There's also hard conversations, hard, uh, a hard side to pastoring, working through conflict, making hard decisions, admonishing brothers and sisters who are stumbling or headed down a path of foolishness. And sometimes we even have to let people go. Not that we're, I mean, there is a excommunication aspect to a local church. We haven't had to experience that, but sometimes it, people just leave, and you have to let them go. You can't force them to stay because they won't heed biblical wisdom. But there is also a great joy in helping and serving people you love and people who love you. So James paints a picture here that gives a great warning to anyone who seeks this kind of position. A teacher or rabbi in the first century was well-respected, could even become a position that people would seek for the wrong reasons, which can happen today, which is why if a guy comes to us expressing a desire to be a pastor, you're not going to see him teaching the next week. Well, let's see how you do. It's kind of like America's Got Talent. You know, you keep going or you're out. It's not how we plan on doing things. If we start doing things, please come and remove us. We're done. There's a process to examine those desires to make sure they are God-given and 
then help him learn and hone his gifts and skills the Spirit has given. But the warning from James has to do with the fact that not many should want this because teachers will face a stricter judgment. He's not saying no one should want to do this because of this, but not many should actually become teachers, which in some ways makes sense. Local churches don't need everyone to be actual pastors or elders. We need some. And we want more, not because we necessarily need more here, but we want more so we can actually send guys out to plant churches here locally, beyond the local area, and even to the nations. But if this kind of warning is enough to dissuade you, then don't pursue that. Just, okay, that's not for me. There's a million other ways I can serve in a local church and not be a pastor or elder. A million. But if this warning uh, that you hear uh, in your, e- your ears and inside of you, you still think, no, I, I have to do this. I cannot not do this. Then keep moving forward. Charles Spurgeon was famous for telling young men who wanted to be pastors, if you can be happy doing anything else, then go do that. Because you'll only be fruitful in, in this if this is something you have to do. Because it's a fire in your bones. Otherwise, you won't persevere you'll find something better that's more enticing. The stricter judgment, again, James keeps coming back to this end times perspective. It really flavors his letter a lot. In chapter 1, he spoke of, Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. God has promised to those who love him. James 2.13, For judgments without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. James clearly understood this end times judgment seat of God that even as believers, there's coming a day of accountability. It's not a judgment of eternal life or eternal death for us. That's been decided in how we've responded and received Jesus in this life, either for life or for death, uh, receiving or rejecting. For Christians, our accountability is described in 1 Corinthians 3, the, the beam of seat of judgment, some people call it, about our works. Will our lives have laid up treasure in heaven, metaphorically gold, silver, costly stone, Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 3 to describe. Or will our lives have laid up wood, hay, and straw, stubble, metaphorically things that don't last or matter in eternity. And in this judgment, James is saying teachers face a stricter judgment. Not stricter in the sense that the bar is higher, so we have to jump higher than everyone else because we're a teacher of God's word. But stricter in the sense, and this is where the context really helps, that if words are so important and such an important part of our works, evidence of genuine faith, and as we'll see next week, our tongues are so hard to control, we have more skin in the game for which we'll have to answer for. That's what he's saying. We just have more evidence and more opportunity for our works, i.e. works of the tongue, to be examined, works that are really hard to produce good fruit because the tongue is so untamable. So for instance, I'm going into my 20th year of being a pastor. I pastored two traditional, mostly rural churches for 11 years before the crossing was planted. I sat down and estimated that I probably have done something like this close to 2,500 times over the last 19 years. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Sunday school classes, revivals, camps, whatever. Not to mention innumerable conversations, counseling conversations, 
texting, email, counseling conversations, sharing the gospel. Like I really, I have no idea, right? And to think I'm going to have to stand and give an account for every word taught and spoken is and very, very somber, very sobering. Like, I don't even want to listen to my sermons from 2003. I certainly don't want God to have to listen to that. Or 2007, Jared trying to give biblical counsel. Like, eesh, God help those people. I tried to help. And in 20 years, I'll look back on 2022, Jared, and probably feel some of the same things. Like, did I have any idea what I was doing? Maybe, maybe in my 60s, I'll figure this out. So much room to grow and learn. But because I've been in this role or for anyone in a role like this who teaches a lot, the judgment is stricter because we just have so much material to, to work with and so many more opportunities for our tongues to get us in trouble. Like I love humor. I, I always see the joke with the punchline just kind of hanging in the air. I'm like, okay, I'll say it. I've grown in my ability to hold my tongue. I, I, I think I probably... Don't say as many jokes as I do say, I hope. But far too often, you just say it. And sometimes it's fun, maybe even funny. Sometimes it's careless. Sometimes it's this insecurity in me because I want people to like me. So if I'm funny, they'll like me. So I have to guard against that. Sometimes it's hurtful. Like far too many times I see the words leaving and I'm like, please come back before that reaches your ears. So for those in this official role as a teacher or preacher or elder, heed this warning. You're just going to give yourself more opportunity for judgment because you're putting so much more out there and you won't always get it right. In fact, it's a sign of humility for you to be able to go back and say, I wish I could have said that differently. I wish I could have done that better. I wish I could have been more loving. Like if you, if you can't go through life and see those things, these potential blind spots, that's a problem. If you heed this warning and you want to proceed with this calling in this role of being a pastor teacher, you can't not not do it, then that's also good evidence that God is indeed calling and desiring you to be in that role. It's part of aspiring to be an elder or pastor. But this isn't just a warning to men in this official role of pastor or elder. It's at least that because teaching is a huge part of this role. But it's more than that. And we know this because James uses the word teacher. He uses the word elder in James chapter 5. He knows that word. He could have said elder right here. But he says teacher. He knew the position and distinction. And so in some ways, this is for all of us who will teach the Bible to some degree. Jesus told all of his followers when he gave the Great Commission in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always into the end of the age. This was given to all of his followers on this mountain before he ascended into heaven. So this doesn't mean everyone is a pastor or an elder, but it does mean as we go forward and obey this command, we all help teach people the commands of Jesus and how to obey Jesus. Parents with children, friends with friends, older women to younger women, older men to younger men. This is the ministry of teaching that we're all call, called up in and called to as members of the body of Christ. Tim, Tim Keller describes a threefold ministry of the word in the local church. You have this that we usually think of as preaching, this formal gathering on Sunday mornings of God's people teaching the Bible in a sermon. 
You have the teaching of the word that can happen in small groups, DNA groups, blogs, articles posted, less formal times. And then thirdly, you have the ministry of the word in personal conversations. And so to some degree, we're all teachers. And to some degree, there's a sober accountability for the words that we speak and how we teach and share God's truth with one another. So if you thought you were off the hook, because he's just talking about pastors, surprise, you're not. And now we all feel this pit in our gut. Every word, really? I'm going to stand and give an account for every word that's so overwhelming. Maybe we we should take a vow of silence and just keep it that way. It's hard. And we'll get more into that next week. But, but this morning, see the opportunity that we have. Our words can convict us and when examined, uh, can be less than exemplary. And, and of course, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is sufficient to cover all of our sins, past, present, and future. So there's no words that you speak that can't be forgiven apart from the sin of blasphemy, which is basically the sin of unbelief, just attributing the works of God to the works of Satan. But apart from that, our words can also give life. And that's what I want you to to leave with this morning. Right after Paul said what he said in Ephesians uh, 4.31, let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you, along with all malice. Verse 32, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as God also forgave you in Christ. Similar passage in Colossians 3, therefore as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, Put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ to which you were called in one body rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another through psalms and hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Can you imagine a community of people whose teaching of the Bible and the words that they speak to each other is described like this? Like, how beautiful would that be? More than our funny jokes, more than our sophisticated takes, on MCU phase four, five, and six, more than our breakdown of NFL fantasy football, our food and drink reviews, more than the fun of the silly, our speech is filled with love and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, bearing, and notice in both passages, forgiving, which means we don't always get it right. And we need to confess and need to forgive each other. But it will sometimes be life-giving and right and good. And by His grace, we interact with each other, not in manipulative ways, not in flattery, but genuine expressions of gratitude. Like, I see God at work in you in this. I see His grace, and I can genuinely celebrate this good that He's doing in you. And I want to spur you on, and I want to cheer you on to more, like, being that community for each other, like we're, we're each other's biggest cheerleaders, each other's biggest fans. Like, yes, go, keep pressing forward, keep going, keep doing the things God's called you to do. Yeah, you're going to mess up. We're going to help you with that too. 
but we're still for you and behind you, blowing wind into your cells as you are carrying out the calling that God's given you in your life. Like, what kind of community would this be? How infectious this would be. How supernatural and transformative in our city and our culture. Like, needed. And the potential for good just even more because our culture is so negative and critical. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? And all of this is possible because our great teacher, our perfect rabbi, came and used his words to speak God's truth, to give life and healing and hope, to confront the religious hypocrites, to love and give validity to the marginalized and the hurting. And at the end of his ministry, words and tongues were used to condemn him, not because he was guilty, but because he was God, this was God's plan to sacrifice himself for us all. The one who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. First Peter 2 talks about Jesus. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep gone astray, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And he rose from the dead and now lives inside of us, his people, to more and more make us his people who teach each other God's truth so we can more and more be transformed and teach others God's truth and see them transformed. This is the work of the local church. And I pray that that's true of your heart and your soul and your life, like you're there with Jesus in whatever ways you're not and whatever ways the Spirit convicted you today, then today is a day of repentance. Jesus is here to help you repent and to embrace you again and bring you back to him. Say, let's, let's do it again. Another week, another day, let's go. I'm all in. I'm behind you, I'm for you, I'm with you. Let's walk this out. And maybe today the Spirit of God has opened your eyes and, and you need salvation because you never truly have trusted him. And you can do that too. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for sending your son to be the savior of the world. Thank you that believing in him, placing all the weight of our life now and our life forever on Jesus, pushing all of the chips in on Jesus, brings us eternal life, makes us new creatures in Christ. Makes us different, changed. The Spirit of God moves in. We're not the same. I pray that's true of everyone here. And if it's not, then save who needs to be saved today. By your grace, by your power, through their faith, for the glory of Christ. But for the rest of us, um, help us grow in our ability to be teachers of your word to share the truth of God's word with the love and the grace of God so that we are built up, edified, encouraged, transformed so that our city can see the reality of Jesus, so that we can experience the reality of Jesus, so that the gospel spreads and the kingdom grows. God, do this. We thank you. Are you not only want to do this, you are sufficient to do this. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.